All right. Um, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. And if you like that Daniel Joseph impression, you would really like uh, Corner Fringe Ministries, which is where a lot of this information came from. So I want to give him a good shout out for that. Uh, but it's honestly been something that's kind of been on my heart. When Dad asked me to speak, there was almost too many things to talk about. And so I struggled with figuring out exactly which topic to pick, but I think this is applicable for the time that we're in, and hopefully you guys get something out of it. What we're going to be focusing on is the title of the message that I had was Two Trees, Two Women, and One Choice. So we're going to be talking about the two trees in the garden and also the, the two women that happen to show up in the Bible multiple times. So we're going to get started with the two trees right at the beginning here in Genesis. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I want you, what I want you to notice here is that these two trees are both at the center of the garden. And that's really important to see because that's going to be important throughout the rest of this message. That I guess I kind of had the idea that they weren't next to each other or maybe that this other tree is like a weird looking tree that's off in the distance. But as Duke kind of going through the study, just realizing that's not the case at all. In fact, this tree was beautiful, and it was right next to one another, right next to the tree of life. So important to recognize how close these trees actually are. I also think it's important to point out who made these trees, because you would think if this tree of knowledge of good and evil is such a bad thing that they aren't supposed to touch, well, surely God did not create that then. But it says right here, out of the ground, the Lord God made this which to me kind of throws out the theory of um, election or the doctrine of election as we'll get into here in a second. Basically, God gave them the choice from the very beginning. Moving on to verse 15 through 17, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Out of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So one thing I do want to point out here, we've talked a lot about food laws, and I'll point this out again, that the very first law in the Bible was a food law. The second law that we tend to see, well, not second, but first law after Noah's Ark is a food law as well. So food laws are prevalent throughout Scripture, um, if you look in Genesis 9 as well. But going back to this point of them having the choice that at this point in the garden, Adam and Eve are immortal. They're clothed in righteousness. They are pure. They are perfect. And even in a state of perfection, immortality, and righteousness, God gave them two paths, two choices to make. To eat the tree of life, do not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had a decision to make. We're going to get some context on these trees a little bit by going to the book of Enoch. And I don't want to dive really deep into why um, Enoch especially, but I'm just going to point out Enoch is quoted in scripture in Jude. Um, the book of Enoch was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so there's a lot of value to this. Um, Esther wasn't even found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so I'm not saying in this message that we're going to put this on the same scope of scripture, but I think it's really important to go to for commentary because the book of Enoch provides some tremendous insight into 
what the Garden of Eden looks like and what the throne room of God looks like. So we're going to go ahead and start here in Enoch 24. And just to give you some background, Enoch is seeing this vision. These angels are taking him to different places that he's seen. And this uh, happens to be a place that he's looking at here. And from thence I went to another place of the earth, and he showed me a mountain range of fire, which burnt day and night. And I went beyond it and saw seven magnificent mountains, all differing each from the other, and the stones thereof were magnificent and beautiful, magnificent as a whole of glorious appearance and fair exterior, three towards the east, one founded on the other, and three towards the south, one upon the other, and deep rough ravines, no one of which joined any other. And the seventh mountain was in the midst of these, and it excelled them in height, resembling the seat of a throne, and a fragrant trees encircled the throne. And amongst them was a tree such as I had never smelt, neither was any amongst them, nor were others like it. It had a fragrance beyond all fragrance, and its leaves and blooms and wood wither not forever. And its fruit is beautiful, and its fruit resembles the dates of a palm. Then I said, How beautiful is this tree and fragrant! Its leaves are fair, and its blooms very delightful in appearance. Then answered Michael, one of the holy and honored angels who was with me and was their leader. And he said to me, Enoch, why dost thou ask me regarding the fragrance of the tree, and why dost thou wish to learn the truth? So it's interesting that he's seeing this beautiful vision of what's taking place, these mountains, which we'll see in Revelation, is the throne room of God. And he's going to answer that even here. He's seeing a picture of heaven, but the thing that stands out to him is the fragrance of these trees. It's, it's permeating. That it's the first thing he asks is, what in the world is this smell? Then I answered him saying, I wish to know about everything, but especially about this tree. And he answered saying, this high mountain, which thou hast seen, whose summit is like the throne of God, is his throne, where the Holy Great One, the Lord of glory, the eternal King will sit when he shall come down to visit the earth with goodness. As for this fragrant tree, no mortal is permitted to touch it till the great judgment, when he shall take vengeance on all and bring everything to its consumption forever. It shall then be given to the righteous and holy. Its fruit shall be for food to the elect. It shall be transplanted to a holy place, to the temple of the Lord, the eternal King. So we'll see later in Revolution, or Revelation that this tree is transplanted to that holy place, to the throne room of God in heaven. We will see this same tree. But it's interesting again to point out that this fruit from this tree is only for the righteous. It is only for elect. And that's going to be important as we move on. Giving eternal life. Moving into uh, Enoch 25. And they shall rejoice with joy and be glad, and into the holy place shall they enter and its fragrance shall be in their bones. So in other words, the fruit that they're eating is so fragrant that as they eat it, it emanates from their very bones, which is interesting because there's scripture uh, that we might get into, I don't remember if I have it in here, talking about the smell of uh, the aroma. We'll get into that, I think. And they shall live a long life on earth, such as thy fathers lived, and on their days shall no sorrow or plague or torment or calamity touch them. Then blessed I, the God of glory, the eternal King, who hath prepared such things for the righteous and hath created them and promised to give them. I think this is where we're getting into the aroma. Uh, in Leviticus, we see that this, this smell is all throughout Scripture. So this is not just something that's unique to Enoch. 
because when you read, I just have one example here in Leviticus, but if you read Leviticus, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, every single time it talks about one of the sacrifices that they're giving, the sacrifice is supposed to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, literally wafting up into the heavens to be pleasing to God. Leviticus 3.5, Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, this idea of this aroma was not just something that happened way back in Levitical times or in Enoch. This was something that the apostles knew. In fact, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to, or, yeah, death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? So there's no doubt that Paul knew that this tree of life was synonymous with Yeshua, with Jesus Christ, our Savior. This was not something that was lost on him. So in other words, if we possess the tree of life, if we eat of the fruit, right, the whole point of the tree of life is to give us life. Who does that? The only person that can do that for us is Yeshua. Interesting that what was being sacrificed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy was offerings. And we know that we are now supposed to be that sacrifice in Hebrews. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's why I mentioned earlier, our worship, our sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to God there in Hebrews 13, 15, 15. Uh, in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So I want to get into why we call it the tree of life. This one's very easy. We call it the tree of life because that is exactly what it gives. It gives us life. Uh, the tree is synonymous with Jesus because in John 10, 10, this is exactly what is said of our Savior. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have a picture up here of the scrolls, and this just baffles me that for centuries the Jews have come out every single Sabbath with these Torah scrolls holding on to something well, let me ask you this. Does anybody know what these are called? Something with a head. You're close. These are called these are called Etzhaim. They, they are literally translated as the tree the tree of life. So what they come out with every single Sabbath with the scroll, they are bringing out the tree of life. They are literally bringing Yeshua, and they miss it. Just, I can't understand that. Um, this etzhaim is all throughout Scripture. When you see the tree of life, it is the exact same word. Um, Genesis 2.9, which we just read, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, etzhaim, was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Proverbs, which we're going to get into in a little bit, talking about wisdom. She is a tree of life, that's Haim, to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, that's Haim, and he who wins souls is wise. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, that's Haim, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit, Proverbs 15, 4. So, that's the different transliterations of that word, but the symbolism of the word of God in and of itself. These Torah scrolls are being brought on the tree of life. Even to the fact that, again, these Torah scrolls traditionally are written on lamb skin. And we know that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. So I'm trying to make this very clear to you that the word of God and the tree of life are synonymous with Christ Jesus, our Messiah. John 1, 4, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know that the word equals Yeshua equals the tree of life. We're going to look at Revelations here quite a bit this evening. This is going to be the first one in uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Interesting to point out, this imagery is the exact same thing we read about in the book of Enoch uh, with the mountains of, of God. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Does that sound like anybody you know? Psalm 107.20, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. Going back to Enoch here, we're going to look at the next tree. So we already know, laid the groundwork, that this tree of life is Yeshua. This next tree is a little different story. Uh, Enoch 32, verse 3, And I came to the garden of righteousness, and saw beyond those trees many large trees growing there, and of goodly fragrance, large and very beautiful and glorious, and the tree of wisdom, whereof they may eat and know great wisdom. That tree is in height like a fir, and its leaves are like those of a carob tree, and its fruit is like the clusters of a vine, very beautiful, and the fragrance of the tree penetrates afar. Then I said, how beautiful is the tree, and how attractive is its look? So this tree, it's not some ugly-looking fern that's off in the distance that like, yeah, well, we definitely are not eating that fruit. That looks terrible. This tree is beautiful. It has that same fragrance. Well, I believe a different fragrance, but it has that same eminence, permeance of a sweet aroma. This tree is mesmerizing, and it stands out. It is different than other trees. Who does that sound like? Well, sounds very similar to Yeshua, but a little bit different. We're going to have to go to Ezekiel in order to get this answer. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 13. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And this, this king of Tyre is really just a, use, a euphemism for Satan, for Hasatan. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, 
Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. This is basically the exact same description we get of the tree in the book of Enoch. It's called the tree of wisdom and was very, very special. Likewise, Satan, when he was created, was very special. In fact, there was a celebration in heaven, a day prepared for him on the day that he was created. Interestingly enough, these same stones that were his covering are the exact same coverings on the high priest. So Satan is literally an exact replica of what God uses for good and what he tries to create. Satan is a replica of that, down to the very stones on the breastplate of the high priest. Ezekiel 28, 14 through 15, we're just moving on. You were the anointed cherub who covers, I established you, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So, Satan was so close to God that he was literally the cherub that covered, the same cherub that covered the ark in the, the tabernacle. The, the seat of God was Satan. He could not have been closer to God. Just like the tree in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was just in the midst of the tree of life. They are right next to each other. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Notice being cast out and that he's laid before kings. That'll be important coming up. Uh, we're going to get to this in Revelations 12, but you can see this was a prophecy of what's to come in Revelation, which ended up already taking place, um, and some of it is still yet to come. Going back here to Enoch, we're going to be jumping around quite a bit, so I apologize for that, but this is the best way to, to try and lay this picture out. Then Raphael, the holy angel who was with me, answered me and said, This is the tree of wisdom of which thy father, old in years, which is Adam, and thy aged mother, Eve, who were before thee, have eaten. And they learnt wisdom, and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they were driven out of the garden. So, hopefully by now we are clear that the tree of life is Yeshua, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a representation of Satan. I'm painting the picture that Yeshua is one and Satan's the other, but really what we're looking at is life and death. So what does Satan lead to is death. Satan is not the one that sends you to hell. You do that to yourself. He just happens to be the best at sending people there, bringing them with him. So I don't know if it matters exactly, you know, defining that. Maybe it does, but I think more so it's the fact that it, it, it leads to death. That's probably the more important thing to focus on, but that, that's an interesting question I don't have an answer for, I guess. Um, we're going to look here, now that we know what these two trees represent, kind of what the, the game plan is for Satan. What this tree, because we know that the tree of life is healing, that it brings life, but what does this tree 
of knowledge of good and evil bring. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, God has indeed said, or has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. This is Genesis 3.1. So do you notice what Satan does here? The first thing he does is call into question God's commandments. Did God really say that? This is the exact same playbook that's being used in the church today. Did God really say that you got to honor the Sabbath? Or did he just say you can kind of come worship me? It's the exact same playbook. He's gone out and he's called into question the commandments of God. Did God really say that you have to abide by the Torah? Did he really say that you can't eat these things? It sounds like he kind of did away with that, that the law was done away with. Did he really do that? So, what should our response be? Exactly what Eve did here. I talked about this in my last message a couple months back, that Eve's response here is beautiful. And the woman said to the serpent, just repeats right back to him, the commandment of God. She, she uses the word of the Lord to re, as her rebuttal to Satan. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor should you touch it, lest you die. So she knows, if I eat this fruit, I will die. She's aware of that consequence. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. With these five words, depends on your translation, Satan removed the fear of those commandments. So she knew that the punishment for doing this was death. But when Satan takes away that punishment, and there's no consequence for it, might as well do it. Which sounds like exactly what's going on in the church when cheap grace says you can get away with anything because you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. You're not going to die if you do that. You're, you've been baptized. You're fine. Now, I am not saying that your works save you. Got to make that clarification. I feel like I'm safe to say that in this room, but I still have to clarify that I'm not saying you're saved by what you do, but I am saying that cheap grace where you can say a prayer and then go off and do your life and live your life the way you want to live it and expect to have no consequence is not biblical. What Satan does is mixes absolute truth. This verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's truth. Satan just spoke absolute truth right there. That's not the problem. It's what he said right before that, the five words of removing the fear. That's the problem. In other, in other words, when you take away the fear of God, you're given over to your flesh, and we know that our flesh it's going to lead us to destruction. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So analyze this tree for what it is. If you eat of the fruit of the flesh, you will die. Again, this lie being covered in truth, the fact that Christ died for us so we're under grace, we're saved by grace through faith. But Romans says, do we nullify, or do we then nullify the law by this faith? Certainly not. Rather, we uphold the law. Romans 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, which I'm going to be honest with you guys, this is something that I struggle with. I love learning. I love knowledge. It makes me feel like I have something that somebody else doesn't. This is a sin that I struggle with, and I think it's a sin that many, many people struggle with, of intellectualism, how we see knowledge as power. But you could input any sin into this tree. It's the flesh. This is what this is. But her lust of her eyes is what got her into trouble. We, my wife and I were talking yesterday that Daniel Joseph said, once you're married, you don't have an option. You don't have any other options. You don't get to go look at pornography. You don't get to sit around with the guys and just look at other people and say, well, I, I can look, but I can't touch. You have no option. You're married. Once you are the bride of Christ, you have no option. This fruit is not an option. It's off the table. No choice. You cannot be of this world and be of God. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So as soon as they do this, they knew they were in shame. And they, they could not hide their own shame. They had no power to do it. So they were helpless. Thankfully, the Lord stepped in. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. There had to be a shedding of blood in order to keep them closed. Just more symbolism there. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Once they had eaten of this fruit, they could not eat from the tree of life. They were cut off. They were hopeless. Until Yeshua came and offered them a way out to the tree of life, they were dead. When they mixed good with evil... Holy has now been perverted. It's been mixed with the profane, clean with unclean. That's exactly what I think we see today. Clean and unclean. Where, where is the stand that we're going to put on things that are sin and things that are not sin? Even in my own life, I try to justify the evil things that I have, thinking I can get away with some of it, as long as I'm still eating the tree of life, as long as I'm still in my Bible or coming to Bible study on Saturday, I'm fine. I can still get away with a little bit of that. This is very clear. God is not joking around. You cannot do that. You are a new creation in Christ. You've been given two paths, one to life and one to leads to death, period. That is your option. Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 18. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. 
This is as simple as it gets. You've got two choices, life or death, and either choice is worship. Because this is exactly what Satan wants. If your heart turns away and you're drawn away, you're worshiping other gods. No matter what, if you like it or not, you're worshiping. Every action you do, every waking moment of the day, you're worshiping something. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Satan wants worship and God wants worship. Again, two sides of the same coin. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Unfortunately for Adam and Eve, this was not the case. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The good news is that this is in the past. We know that Yeshua died on the cross for us, that we have a Savior. We have access to the tree of life. So the question is, do you want it? Revelation 22, 12 through 14. If you want to partake in the tree of life, this is how you do it. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work, not works righteousness, but clearly we're judged based on our work here. It's, it's in scripture. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do my command or who do his commandments, that he may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Do not let Satan strip the fear of God from you. Obey his commandments and love him. If you think you're going to get away with that lustful thought and that he's not going to know, or that you can break the Sabbath, just because you're under grace, you're not going to. That's, that's disobedience. There is grace. So when you do those things, it's not like you are cut off from him. We're in a beautiful relationship with him where we, we do not have to be perfect. But if you're living in these things continually and you know it's wrong, you've got you to gotta step out of that. So we talked about the two uh, tree trees. I'm going to also show you here a different side of good and evil, Yeshua and Satan, in the sense of two women. Proverbs 3.13, uh, the whole book of Proverbs is really about wisdom, but specifically this chapter talks about wisdom. And in this chapter, wisdom is personified as a woman. In fact, all throughout scripture. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. So clearly this wisdom is something good, something that we're after as man. But I think it's important that we define these terms, uh, not my term or your term, but by biblical standards. So we're going to go to Deuteronomy to define what this wisdom actually means. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you should go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will heal all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
So this wisdom mentioned in, mentioned in Proverbs is the statutes and the judgments of God. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, Proverbs 3, 13 through 18. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are way... Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. This is that same verse I mentioned to you earlier, that Etz Chaim. She is Etz Chaim. What did we learn about the tree of life? It's Jesus. She is Jesus to those who take hold of her. She is Yeshua HaMashiach, your Savior, to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who retain her. So at this point, we understand that these terms are interchangeable. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the hill. Notice where she's at here, at the top of the hill, that's important. Beside the way where the paths meet, she cries out by the gates at the entry of the city. At the entrance of the doors, to you, all men I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O oh, you simple ones, understanding prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Proverbs 8, 1-5. So the rest of this um, portion just goes through all the, the blessings that come through wisdom. But I'm going to skip through that and go to our, well, no, wrong slide. I'm going to just give a few verses forward to Proverbs 8.32. Now therefore listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. This is basically Matthew. If you love me, you will obey my commandments in the Old Testament. This is the same thing that Jesus says. For who, uh, Proverbs 8, 35, 36. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. In Proverbs, what is the me referring to? I mean, I know, I know Wisdom. Jesus. This is wisdom. Wisdom is, this is, these are things that wisdom is saying, which is why I'm pointing out, wisdom is Jesus. Because in John 14, or John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So, if I haven't made this clear, I'm sorry. I'm not doing my job right. The tree of life, wisdom, and Yeshua are all the same things. When you're reading scripture and you're looking, I was just talking to Mark about this, and you're looking for ways that you can put yourself into that situation where you're the main character or you're the hero of that story, it's not you. This whole book, wherever my Bible is at, is about Jesus. It points to him. In every single aspect of this book, if you look for it. Um, want to talk a little bit because there is, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that Jesus was a woman. So I'm just going to clarify by saying that Jesus uses figurative language all throughout scripture. We know that, but I just want to clarify that. Uh, in Matthew 23, 37, it talks about, uh, a hen gathering her chicks under her wing, which is obviously God, and he's not a, a chicken, so we know that. 
Isaiah 66, 13, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. So why is he symbolized as a woman? Because God, women are made in God's image as well. So this shouldn't be some big shock, but I just wanted to clarify that. It's to give us a deeper understanding and a different view of, of Jesus than what we're used to in the Gospels. He's expressing a different aspect of himself. Proverbs 9, 1 through 3. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. You could substitute prophets, disciples. She cries out from the highest places of the city. This is what she cries in Proverbs 9, 4 through 5. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. How can we not point this to Christ? In John 6, 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay. Hopefully we got that established. We're going to move on to the second woman. The same chapter in Proverbs, just a few verses later. Proverbs 9, 13 through 15. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by where? The highest places of the city. The exact same place where wisdom is seated. To call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. In the highest place, in the middle of the garden, right in the middle of righteousness, this is where you need to be looking for Satan. And who does she want? Those who go straight on the way. Those who are walking the straight and narrow. That's the target that she's after. So if you expect to find her out sitting in the bars, the strip clubs, yeah, the work's already been done there. Where the battle's taking place is right in the highest place of the city where wisdom is. Which is a scary thought. Fortunately for us, we have something that is sharper than a double-edged sword, willing to cut between bone and marrow to decipher. But I can guarantee you on your own thinking, without the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to distinguish the difference. There's no way. Here's why. This, this is what the foolish woman says. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. What did we just read? That was Proverbs 9.16. What did we just read in Proverbs 9.4 from the, the wise, from wisdom? Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. Same exact message. They are, they're targeting whoever's simple, let him turn in here. Same message. Proverbs 9.18, But he who does not know that the dead are there, or but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. So, the people that are going to this foolish woman do not know that in her back door is a pile of dead bodies. We're not... 
let me rephrase this. When these people break the commandment of God, they do not realize that it's going to bring them death. They are being deceived. It's a lie. This foolish woman is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And to walk away from those commandments of God, to put yourself out of the knowledge of God, puts you in a place where you're susceptible to not even understand what you're doing. It's not like these people, Eve, Eve knew that if I eat of the fruit of this, I'm going to die. Here it's saying these simple people don't even know that there are dead bodies there. It's just a scary thought to think about. That unless we have the word of God to lead and guide us, sorry, you're not going to make it. You're not smart enough to make it. I was thinking of something. So if she's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she's pleasing to the eye. Yep. She's pleasing to the Beautiful. Yeah. She's beautiful. It's not the witch from Hansel and Gretel. You can easily spot it. It's... Yep. That's a good point. Speaking of beautiful women, uh, these, this idea of two women, there, there's a couple other examples. I didn't put them in here, but um, one I thought was interesting to point out because Dad said he's going to be talking about Esther is Esther and Vashti. And the sense of Vashti was beautiful. The whole reason the king wanted to bring her out was to show her off. She was this beautiful woman, his queen. But when, when he called her, she refused. She didn't come. And so what happened? Kicked her out. We never hear of her again. In essence, she's dead. But when Esther was called, she was humble. She wasn't proud. She wasn't selfish. She was really willing to risk her own life for Israel. If that doesn't point to Jesus, I don't know what does. The next example we're going to go into a little bit is Ruth and Orpah. For those who aren't familiar, um, Naomi was married to Alimelech. She had two sons. I don't remember what their names were. I can't tell you off the top of my head. And her sons married Orpah and Ruth. They lived in the land of Moab. And when Alimelech and her two sons die, Ruth is, or Naomi's heartbroken and decides to go back to Israel. And in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8 through 9, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10 through 13. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. Same response that Eve gives. No, I'm going to stay around. I'm sticking with this. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Picking up in 14 through 16. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's interesting, that verse we read about clinging to Jesus. Orpah, after this, is never heard from again. 
But we know the story of Ruth. Naomi says, and she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And I just love this. For your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Both taking actions, one forsaking the Lord of Israel, going back to her gods, she's the example of death, and Ruth clinging to the Lord God of Israel, receiving life, and ending up being in the, is it the lineage of Christ? I don't know if that's the same thing if you gave, you were ahead of her or ahead of him. Okay. Well, she was blessed to be a part of the lineage of Christ. That's just awesome. So we're going to wrap up in Revelations um, chapter 12, start verses 1 through 4. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So, we're going to go get into another example of two women here. This first woman being clothed with the sun, 12 stars above her head, but she's in pain, in childbirth. If you go to Isaiah 9, you will see a mirror image of this prophecy. Uh, I just have one verse up here, but go read Isaiah 9. It is just, uh, words blanking on me. It's a parallel from Revelations 12. This head and this tail, this elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. So, obviously this prophet who teaches a lie, we know this is Satan. How is he able to draw a third of the angels? In Revelation 12, 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The deception that Satan has to deceive those who are in the very presence of God. That's, that's deception right there. So this portion of the vision that we are seeing here, this is a vision of a past event. This is before Christ has come because we know that Christ is this child. The, the dragon that is there, ready to devour the child as soon as it is born. We know that King Herod, who was the king of the Jews was ready to kill Jesus as soon as he was born, to wipe out the child that was supposedly the, the king of the Jews. Revelations 12.5 She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. So, obviously, this is Yeshua rising to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Hebrews 12.2 uh, backs this up. Looking into Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Enoch says the exact same thing, 42 verse 1, Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Then a dwelling place was assigned her in the heavens. Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels. 
Is wisdom Jesus? Pretty sure he is. Luke 9, 58, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you guys need more parallels of this? Because I can do this all day. Yes. But what does the fox say? Wrapping up here in Revelation. Uh, 12, 13 through 15. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed out of its mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by a flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who? Does anybody know who the rest of her offspring are? You know? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you do those things, you're the offspring of Christ. You have everlasting life. The problem is, this offspring is being attacked by this dragon. So whether or not, whether you like it or not, you're at war. This is also where we get into the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. So, we're going to look real quickly to wrap things up at this mark of the beast and this mark of the Lord. Because we know that there's a mark of the Lord. We already know that. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Exodus 13, 16. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So these commandments were meant to be placed on their hand and on their forehead, the exact same place where the mark of the beast is. We know now that when Christ came to fulfill the law, he's put that law on our hearts where we, if we obey the commandments of God, are marked with the seal of the Lord. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. The commandments, the feasts, Sabbath, these are all the marks of God. If you obey these, you're marked. But there's a flip side to this. And that is the mark of the beast. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Interesting that from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end of Revelation, we see the exact same thing played out over and over and over. It is complete. So you cannot separate these. You cannot separate Old Testament and that's all I need or New Testament and that's all I need. The whole book points to this. You cannot take out aspects of Scripture and get this entire story, because from front end to back end, it points to Christ. So this is what the beast does. 
Revelations 13 through 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. What this mark is trying to do, or this mark, is anyone who compromises their faith, compromising and disobeying the commandments of God. This is the last woman. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So this great harlot is that same foolish woman parallel to Proverbs because we see here the kings of the earth. Remember how it said that the, the kings were obeying her? That's what we see here. The kings of earth committed fornication. 17 verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, the exact same thing Vashti would have been dressed in, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, the exact same thing Satan was adorned in having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So, like you said, this woman is beautiful to behold. Magnificent. Mesmerizing. We know that gold is a symbol of holiness, of, of purity. The temple was overlaid in gold. So it's, it's a spit in the face and a perfect mockery. Because inside this golden cup is abomination. So it looks beautiful on the outside. It looks holy on the outside. But inside, we know, is nothing but abominations. Inside is death. Revelation 17, 5 through 6. And on her forehead was an, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The entire word of God is a battle between good and evil, the law and lawlessness, light and dark, the two trees, Yeshua and Hasatan. Whether you like it or not, you're going to receive a mark. Going all the way back from generation to generation, we've been receiving a mark. It all comes down to worship. Who are you worshiping? So you have two choices. Every single day when you wake up, you can choose to walk that straight and narrow, or you can choose your flesh. And I know that you all know that, but I think it's important to point out that it's pretty simple. Oftentimes I think we can confuse things and make things difficult. And I, more than anybody else here, love diving into theoretical, hypotheticals, and doctrine. I love it. But I think it's important to boil salvation down to you have a choice to make. And there isn't half saved. There's not a quarter saved. There's only saved and not saved. And I really hope that everybody here is on that saved side. And if you are, continue on that straight and narrow. Pick up your cross every single day and follow. With that, um, I'm going to pray, but I wanted to and just a little bit early because I wanted to just offer the chance if anybody has any, first of all, any testimonies this week that they would like to share of what the Lord's doing in their life. And second, if anybody has any prayer requests before we pray.